0: This morning, our teacher is going to be the Apostle Peter. He was one of Jesus' disciples who had uh, very simply been saved by God's grace and then restored after a major fall by Jesus' forgiveness and then sent off into the world with a very good mission. Those of you who know this story know that Jesus sent him out to love uh, the world uh, like a shepherd loves his sheep. Uh, We're going to learn from one sentence in the letter that Peter wrote to five different churches. And in that one sentence, there were four images for the church. One, five, four, follow me. It's like a mosaic in which we'll receive guidance on the New Testament's images of the church so that we know how to be. And in weeks past, if you've been here, it's been one image each week. Four images this week, I am going to speak four times quicker than normal. And I'll tell you why I've chosen Peter. It's for a very definite reason. The situation that Peter addressed was very similar to our situation today in two ways, both in terms of the promise and the threat that characterized the people he wrote to. Promise first. Now, Peter's letter was addressed to five different churches all along the main travel route that went from Rome down toward Egypt through Turkey. Turkey the present-day Turkey, and that meant maximum exposure. And so he wrote to a group of people who had unprecedented opportunity to serve God's mission because of where they were placed and because of the faith that God had given them and the gifts that they had. They had great promise for potential good because of who they were and where they were placed. That's you. That's Renaissance Church. You are a group of people that have great promise. Your gifts, your faith, along with the location in which God has put us right now here, means great po- promise for potential good in Renaissance Church. I want to be very specific. You are generous people. Uh, this week in our staff meeting, Kristen, who does our children's ministry, she reported on the outcome from the 44 runners who are going to be running for World Vision later in the month of October who have decided to raise money for water in Africa. They have raised almost $50,000 as of this morning, $49,500 to give away. That's amazing. And that is Representative of the general slant that I see in you. You are generous with your time, with your gifts and your talents, and with your resources to give out in the world. And what that means is great potential for God's mission. That's one. Here's the second thing that I see in you you are an intelligent church. Uh, The time that we find ourselves in is a time where there's diversity and there's skepticism, rightly so, and a good deal of intelligence mixed in. And that requires a kind of faith that is intelligent, so it can be articulated intelligibly. And that's where God has placed us, and I see an enormous amount of intelligence, intelligence in this church. On Thursday this week, I met with a student from Summit High School who comes to this church. He's a junior. He told me that because his brother is an atheist, he's found himself drawn over and over again to studying apologetics. He's been praying that God would give him more and more opportunities to speak about his faith in his school. Last week, he chose an art project in which featured a cross. It was his choice. He drew it. One of the kids at his table looked at it and said in a sarcastic way, oh, is that meaningful to you? He looked at the, at the student and said in a very calm way, yes, yes. It's the most meaningful thing in my life. The other students looked at him, and someone asked, what, you believe in God? And then, this is what the student told me as we were driving in my truck on Thursday. He said, Christian, I unfolded for him the teleological, the ontological, the cosmological, and the moral arguments for the existence of God. Some of the questions that were asked of him were derisive and mocking. Others were deeply sincere and in earnest. And he told me that at the end of the class, the bell rang and almost all of the students stayed behind, plus the teacher, to listen to him talk. We're an intelligent community. And that means potential for good mission. Let me say this as well. Okay, in addition to being generous and intelligent, there's also a big heartedness that I see in this community. And what I mean by that is when people's troubles emerge instead of running away from those problems and others, I see in this church a strong impulse to move toward those struggles and needs in order to help, like your hearts are big. I was at... Uh, On Saturday, I was at the home of one person who loves this church and is not here because his ankle has been broken and he's not able to make it up the stairs. And when I came downstairs, there was someone else from the men's group sitting with him. And I learned that there's a rotation right now of people going to him since he can't come here. And that's just one of uh, a dozen examples that I could enumerate for you to show you how big your hearts are. Uh, Here's one more. Uh, There are a lot of you. In this month behind us, in September, uh, the average attendance over the three services has been between 550 and 600 people. And what that means is enormous potential for reach. Imagine if every attender passed on some of God's goodness or kindness or grace to five people that they have contact with during the week. That would be 3,000 people in this area who had a little bit more of God's benevolence because of who you are being and becoming. Can you see the immense potential and already actualized goodness that I see? Can you see it? And so in that way, we're a lot like the communities that Peter addressed. Now, the reason Peter addressed them was to encourage them and build them up and help them understand themselves better precisely because of the threat that they faced. And this is also like us. Listen, Peter wrote his letter during a time of intense cultural upheaval and social strain. Does that sound familiar? The church's potential was massively hindered and hampered by social currents that were outside of their control. It is the same for us. We are living in a period of intense cultural upheaval and strain. The currents of change which all of us are navigating every day have the potential to sweep us away and undermine our effectiveness and mission as a church, listen, in such a way that we won't even know that it's happening. Do you see that? I'll be specific. We live in a time of unprecedented division right? It is us against them like never before. And I don't mean the church against others. I mean political and ideological divides, which are deepening so that people in the same churches and families are increasingly divided. Some of you cannot talk to your parents about any public, any current issues. And some of you can't talk to your children about any current issues because they watch that news network. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah? Yes or no? They think the same thing about you. (laughs) People on both sides routinely dehumanize those people on the other side. Our environment conditions us to reduce our opponents to their ideas and behaviors rather than seeing them as human beings who happen to have different ideas and behaviors. We caricature, demonize, and dismiss. It happens on both sides. The most obvious sign of this is the disappearance of civility in public discourse. Adults on both sides speak to one another in ways that our kindergarten teachers would scold us for. On both sides... And we are afraid as a result of being judged and labeled. So what we do is we retreat into the mindless games on our cell phones or endless hours on the shows we binge watch and we stay alone, isolated apart, locked in the echo chambers where our views are only reinforced. And the currents, it's like a river drawing us into, please listen now, And forget which side I'm on or you're on or anyone else is on. What happens is this carries us along into a way of being in this world which is contrary to the way that God wants us to be so that we won't see all of the potential in our gifts realized in the actual ways that God wants us to bless the world. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? But it's so good. I'll tell you why. Because what Peter did is he didn't just throw his hands up and say, well, it's just too much. Instead, he set before anyone who would listen very vivid images of who God saw them to be so that they would wake up. And that's what I want this morning. I want us to wake up to our true identity so we don't go on buying all of the ways our current time tells us to identify ourselves, which is with, are we red or are we blue? Are we on this side or are we on that side? Are we a yes or no vote? Who are we? That's not That stuff's important. None of it is who we deeply really are. And so what Peter did then is what I hope God will do through me and these words now, which is to wake us up to who we are by letting the images that he drew upon to teach those people, teach us who God has made us to be now in 2018, right here with all the potential that we've got. Shall we jump into it? 1 Peter 2.9 is the single verse that we're going to consider this morning. Here's how it reads. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There, in one statement, we have a mosaic of four pictures followed by a concise expression of what their mission altogether is. We will take them one at a time. Please open your hearts and your minds so God can tell you who you are now. First, you are a chosen race. In the first century, one of the most critical identity markers would have been a person's race. You were either A Jew, a Gentile, or a barbarian. That's first and primary in who you are. Peter attaches to that primary marker an adjective, chosen, in order to tell everyone that race is now relativized by something about you that is much more important than your race. And we need to hear that as well. We may think our race, our background is important. There's something that is much more important than that. And it is the fact that we are chosen. Now let's dwell here for a minute. In Greek, the word chosen is eklekton. It's the word from which our English word eclectic is derived. If you think eclectic means weird, that's not what eclectic means. Originally, it means out of selected. A person who has an eclectic approach to their intellectual thinking is someone who draws the very best out of a lot of different thinkers, and they're eclectic because they've selected the very best for a good purpose. And that's what is meant here by this adjective describing who we are. We are elected by God in such a way that we should look at ourselves and first of all think, who are we? We are the people that God has chosen. And that's the most important thing about us. Now, the moment I say that, do you feel a little uneasy that somehow you're thinking of yourselves as more privileged than other people? We are the chosen ones. Yes? That's definitely not definitely not the connotation of the word in Peter's mouth please listen to this in classical greek in the 1st century the primary word eklekton is used the primary way that word is used is in reference to soldiers who have been selected out of a large group for a particular mission you can listen now to be chosen by the commanding officer means not that you are are sort of set apart for some special privilege that the rest don't get or that you're preferred or that you're more beloved. That's not what it means. To be elected in that regard means the, the commander has looked and said, aha, they are perfectly suited for this part of the mission that I have and therefore I'm selecting them for the mission. And so when Peter tells these folks and us too, that the first thing about us is that we are chosen by God, that should make us all think God has a mission in mind for us. And he singled us out for that mission. Whenever the Old Testament uses this word eclecton uh, in the Septuagint to refer to a person, always it's a person who's chosen for a mission. Okay, Put on your thinking caps. Abraham was chosen by God. Those of you who know the story know that he was selected in order that God could... Bless him so that through him he could bless the whole world. And that's why he was chosen. Uh, Go forward from there. Jacob was selected, chosen by God, in order to bring justice and delight to the nations. He wasn't chosen for his sake, but for the sake of others. Moses is selected by God not so that he is better than other people, but so that he can free God's people from oppression. Joshua is called chosen so that he can lead the people to the land where they can grow. Elijah is, I could keep going. I'm gonna stop here, but what I want you now to do is think of yourself. In each and every instance, this word chosen is used scripturally. It is to signify a people group, an individual that God has decided will be useful to him for a particular mission. Who are we? We are in this world, which is pressuring us to define ourselves by which side of the line we're on or what we think or what we believe or how we vote or who we, de- what we decide to do. Here is a picture which challenges all of those ways and invites us uh, to, to replace them with a deeper understanding. That first of all, we are a gathering that has been singled out by God, elected by him, chosen for his special purposes in the world. We are the people who he's chosen for a part in his mission. That's number one. Now, if we'll accept that, rationally, we should say, okay, well, what part are we meant to play in his mission? What does it look like? The second bit of uh, imagery here, the second part of the mosaic tells us, okay? You are a chosen people, and here's number two, a royal priesthood. Uh, Royal, in the sense of belonging to the family of the true king. A priest in the sense of mediating between God on the one hand and a world which is terribly far off on the other. Now, before your mind starts to run to the man with the black uh, suit on and the white collar priest, let me tell you the background here because attentive readers will know now that Peter's borrowing from an old list. Uh, He's actually quoting God... As God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, when he tells those people here that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and so on. Many of you will know the story of Moses leading God's people out of oppression in Egypt. After he led them out, he divided the. Let's do a little bit of participation this morning. What did he divide? the Red Sea, and he led them to freedom. And then he went to the mountain. The people waited on the base of the mountain. Moses went up and God spoke to Moses. And this is what God told Moses. Listen, he said, those people that I have now freed, when they follow me and obey me, they will be my chosen race. They will be my royal priesthood. They will be a holy nation. They will be my own possession. The same, Peter is plagiarizing here, okay? And he's doing that because he expects in the minds of the first century readers to be the imagery that maybe our minds don't have yet. But here, what God was telling him is I've freed them for a mission chosen. And the mission, first of all, involves their being my royal priesthood. Royal because they belong to the true God who is the true king, and therefore they're in his family. And thus, Royal as he is royal and priesthood, not in the sense of the man who works at the church down the road that's made of stone, but in the sense of what a priest would do and be before there were any churches for there to be priests in. And what that means, listen now, it means to stand in the unique position that God has given by his grace, which is close to him in between the God who by uh, his spirit and by his cleansing, and by his renewal, and by his anointing, and by a special calling of you, the priest means to use you to bring those who are very far away close to him. That's what the priest did. The priest was the person who stood close to God because of God's special calling, and then brought those who were far away close to God, because that was the priest's mission. And here Peter has it in mind that every man and every woman who comes to the place where they say, I believe, I trust Jesus, I accept the gift he's given to me, every one of you is cleansed and made new and endowed with every bit of God's spirit that you possibly could require and are drawn close to God by the grace of God who loves you more than you could imagine and he embraces and holds you near as a brand new person so he can use you who are close to him to bring those who are very far away from him near, just like the priest was meant to. And this is the second bit about who we are. We are meant to be. Don't think uh, of the professional clergy, but think of the person who God's spirit has been poured out on so he can use that person to bring others near. We are meant to be priests in that sense. And let me be very specific. You are meant to to, uh, undertake that priestly function with each other. And that means when someone is afraid and alone and feeling terribly separated from God, you go to them and you listen. You tell them, let me know how you feel. And when they're done, you put your hand on their shoulder and you don't have to be sophisticated or fancy to do this. You say, may I pray for you? And then you say, God, would you please make your presence known to this person? That's what the priest is meant to do. Or listen. And this one's even more personal, but you are called to do it when that person that you know is wallowing in guilt and self-hatred because of their grief over their own sin and waywardness. The priest is meant to be there and with open ears and without judgment or condemnation to be the one who listens to your confession, I messed up, I did it wrong, this is who I was, I can't believe it. And then the priest says, let us ask together for God's grace and forgiveness upon you. And then after that time, the priest says, you are forgiven, reminding that wayward soul of God's goodness and mercy. You are called to be priests for one another in that way. That's who you are and who are we all together. Now let's think of ourselves as a church in this world we find ourselves in, the world which in its various ways is very Far away from God, if we are the royal priesthood here, it means that we're close to God in a way that God wants to use us to bring the world close. This is our identity. How can we possibly do this all together? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at the third in the list. The third after a royal priesthood is a holy nation. You are a holy nation. Again, Uh, it's clear that this is an image that was meant to be given to a collection of individuals rather than just one person. A royal priesthood, it's a gathering of people who serve a function. Uh, A a chosen um, race, that's a gathering. Here again, a holy nation. Holy is a deep word which defies easy definition. So the best we can do with holy, listen now, is to describe holiness as standing out or apart from what is worldly and corrupt and impure, so that you are distinct and different in a manner which is readily observable and striking to anyone who has eyes open. And, listen now, different in a way that points those who see you to the truth about who God is, in a way that draws them close to God as you are close to God because God is just that good. Now listen. It was not hard to stand out from the world in Peter's day because of of the corruption in general of society in that day. It is not hard to stand out in the world that we find ourselves in by being different. Don't you know that? And let me be as specific as I can. In a world where people are mean, you stand out when you are kind. Kindness is holy. In a world where everyone puts themselves first, you stand out when you put others first. Selflessness is holy. In a world where people throw themselves after every lust and passion they have, you stand out when you exert self-control. Self-control is holy In a world where greed and conspicuous consumption is not just socially acceptable, but celebrated so there are TV shows about it, you stand out when you are generous. Generosity is holy. In a world where everybody is eager to be understood, asserting themselves ever more loudly with their arguments and rhetoric, you stand out when you seek to understand and listen and calmly try to see from someone else's viewpoint. Controlling your tongue is holy. In a world where there, the rule is Attribution, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Forgiveness stands out. Forgiveness is holy. And when the world sees holiness like this, in the ordinary ways that we can be holy wherever we live, then what they see is something that is true about who God is. And it's compelling and it's attractive and it transforms people. And we fulfill our priestly calling as God's chosen people. Do you see it? Some of you remember the Amish schoolhouse shooting that happened some years back. There was a man that I knew in Red Bank only because of the coffee shop where I also happened to work. He was constantly reading philosophy and history there. Occasionally, Paul and I would talk about my work. He'd ask me about theology and he would always tell me I just can't believe in it because of the hypocrisy that I see in the churches. Anyone else ever feel like that? Two days after that shooting, I was in the coffee shop. He approached me and sat down. He asked me, did you hear what those families who lost their daughters in that schoolhouse did? I hadn't heard yet. The shooter who took his own life was left behind by a wife and children. And in this small Amish community, The day that it took place, one of the grandfathers of one of the girls started saying to everyone, we must not hate the man who killed these children because God wouldn't want us to. And the next day, some of the parents who lost their children went to the home of the widow and those children left behind and they publicly expressed forgiveness because they said this is what Jesus would want us to do. And that is what holiness looks like. And Paul said to me, whatever religion they are, that's the religion that I want to be. So that's what we're called to be, holy. And holy does not mean dressed in fine garb and wearing a special hat in the church. It means kindness and generosity and patience and being quiet and choosing not to be retributive, but instead forgiving. That's what it means. And that's our calling. And when we fulfill these callings, when we together behave as a chosen race, when we together live as a a, a royal priesthood, when we are holy together as a people, then we show by our way of being that we've grasped the fourth image in Peter's mosaic. Which again, like the other three, tells us who we are. Uh, Look at the fourth one. You are God's own people. Uh, Literally in Greek, the people of his possession. Uh, Peter means to convey the truth that we belong to God in the same way a purchase belongs to you once you have paid for it in full. You then possess it. Peter has in mind here the truth that God has paid for our freedom by giving himself over to death on the cross in Christ. So now we belong to him. He has purchased us, and now we are his. As Christ put it, the Son of Man came not to serve, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are some of you familiar with that image, ransom? It's meant to draw to mind the situation in which someone has been imprisoned by a force which is stronger than they are so that their freedom is truncated and they no longer have agency in the world in the way that they know they were meant to. Do you know that all around us and even here amongst us there are many who are spiritually imprisoned? And maybe you come into this place this morning and you're not a person of faith, someone told you to come here, and now as I've been racing through these images, you're like, what the heck have I gotten myself into? here's a moment where you're going to connect with me. Our world is filled with spiritual prisoners. In one way or another, this room is filled with spiritual prisoners. Uh, Men and women who are still wrapped up and trapped in their own self-loathing. Men and women who are completely bound as if in chains by habits that they've tried so hard to shake, but they can't. And now they look at themselves and they label themselves failures. Family members who have lost beloved sons, daughters, spouses, who feel now that life has no more purpose, it's empty, there's no reason to move forward anymore, and it's like everything has stalled out. Or, and this is maybe the worst, or, or, or folks who don't even know what to put their fingers on to describe the sinking feeling like they're a boat adrift on a sea with no sails and no anchor just being pushed this way and that the world is filled with people like that. What Peter knew in his own mind because of his own experience is that the story of the gospel says that to prisoners like this, God has condescended in Christ Emptying himself of his majesty and being found in human likeness, born to be one of us so that he could walk the lonely roads that we ourselves are plagued by, so that he could walk it all the way to the end and giving his life on the cross for every desperate loner, he could do what was required to free every prisoner and that was to give his life as a ransom to pay the price required to secure freedom. And I want you to understand he has done this and there's no undoing it. And the only difference between any one of us who embraces and lives accordingly and anyone who doesn't believe it is that we are people who by God's grace have come out of the prison whose doors have already been shattered because they've been shattered for everyone. But when the spirit comes to awaken us to who we are, so we look at ourselves and say, I am a chosen part of this community, and I'm meant to live as a priest in this world in the way that a priest mediates so that my holiness draws others to God, then you can say, and definitively, I belong to God because, and these are Peter's words, I was not ransomed from the futile ways of my ancestors by perishable things like silver or gold, but by the blood of the Lamb, who is destined to spill his blood for me, and therefore I am totally free, and I am His. I belong to Him, and He does not. He is not my possession, but I am His, and that's what we're given to see here too. Woohoo! <laughs> I really appreciate that one person who laughed. <laughs> You know how often religious communities begin to behave as if God is their own possession for the sake of their agendas? How often parties co-opt God to legitimize their self-chosen agendas? This reminds us to always put it the other way around, that we are God's own people, He's not our totem ever. And by the way, if we try to make him into that, you know, he'll be gracious for us still because now as you're sharpening your swords against the other people who do that, which I was just now doing as I was saying it, God's mercy is for all of us. Why? Here, the last phrase in this beautiful passage from Peter tells us the point of all four of those ways of understanding ourselves when he writes this. In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we're supposed to see ourselves in these ways. So that we ourselves who have been called out of darkness into light. And that's just one of the many metaphors that the scriptures use. So that we ourselves who've been redeemed from the prison into freedom. So that we ourselves who were once dead but now have been made alive. So that we ourselves who were once lost but have now been found. So that we ourselves who were once old and everything was a mess and now have been made new so that life is ordered. So that we who used to have no purpose whatsoever but now have a good calling before us so that we might proclaim the mighty acts of the one who's done that for us And for the whole world too. And that is one more concise and brilliant and beautiful depiction of what our mission is. It is to be proclaimers. Not arguers. Not lawyers or attorneys. No disrespect. (laughs) We are to be proclaimers. People whose lives and mouths. Whose silence and eloquent arguments. Whose discussions around the art table when you're a junior in high school describing the existence of God or whose silence sitting beside someone on a couch who can't leave their home and come to church or choosing to give even more money for water in in Africa where someone doesn't have enough in every one of those ways and all of the other brilliant ways you generous, intelligent, and big-hearted people have before you. When you do that, then you are who you are which is this gathering that has been selected for a mission to go out into the world with this priestly function of mediating in a way that makes you stand out and directs attention to God's goodness as you embody the fact that you belong to God because he has purchased you. Would you join me in prayer? God, we are so impossibly grateful for what you have done for us choosing not to leave us alone in the dark but rather to come and deliver us into your marvelous light God here in the light of your goodness and grace would you inspire our minds so that this mosaic of imagery that Peter set forth all those years ago would settle in our own imaginations so that it would shape our way of understanding ourselves and so we'd be different in the world which needs that kind of difference now Thank you for the freedom to grow together like this. We thank you for the way you bless us when we listen to your word. We thank you for all the other people that you've brought into this place with us and the many others who are part of this community who will be here later this morning and then this afternoon. God, would you help us be participants in your mission in such a way that this potential is actualized for good. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.